You're listening to the Salty Sex Cast with Mariah and friends. Minimize the fear. Expand your awareness. Hello, welcome back to episode 140. Welcome anyone who is new to the show and all those who are returning. I just want to say thank you for being brave enough to explore a new episode, continue to add to that sexual education, sexual sexual exploration, and all things just intimacy. So um, it's Mariah here. And for those who are new, I'm a nationally board certified health and wellness coach and a certified education health education specialist with a master's degree in health. And it is my own personal mission just to continue sharing messages for all of us to explore sex and sexuality with little fear and little shame as we can. So I have a guest I'm excited to introduce you all to, to also help us explore today. I have Dr. Botsheva Marcus, who is joining me, um, and she is a certified sex therapist and also an author of Satisfaction Guaranteed, how to have the sex you've always wanted. So that perks us up a little bit, but welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. All right. Tell me, did I say your name correct? Close. My name's Bacheva Marcus. And you know what? (laughs) Everybody gets it wrong, Mariah. So like, it's just, you know what, whatever you say, as long as I'm, you're talking to me, I'm a happy person. Oh, well, thank you for your patience and thank you. And I was practicing and practicing before we hit record. And then I knew I was going to mess up because (laughs) I was putting too much pressure. That was the performance pressure we've talked about in other episodes and that's okay. So this is one of those things that is so not worth pressuring yourself about just telling you, but Cheva, (laughs) it's from another language. It's just the the accents on the middle syllable and it throws everybody off. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for your patience. So tell us a little bit about your background and maybe what got you exploring on the the side of sex. So, um, you know, I grew up in a traditional Orthodox Jewish household, which is pretty religious. And I know some of your listeners are also coming from religious backgrounds, so they know what that's like. And um, I certainly never got the sex education I needed and always felt that lacking and have just any number of embarrassing stories about, you know, growing up without that sex education and always felt like it was important to me to change that. I went into a different field initially. And then in a variety of weird ways life has of happening, I ended up um, working with a urologist who did male sexual functioning. That's what he did. And I started the um, really one of the first centers for female sexual dysfunction at a time when um, everybody thought every problem every woman was having, first of all, they didn't acknowledge that women were having sexual problems. Let's start with that. Mm. But if they did, they assumed they were all psychological. You know, like if you just didn't really want to have sex with your husband anymore after, you know, 10 years, you know, you got to sit down and start digging at what's wrong with the relationship. Um, If you're Mm. having pain with intercourse, let's dig and find out where the sexual abuse was. Well, I thought that was really bullshit. And if you pardon my saying, so you said I could use any language I wanted. Absolutely. um, (laughs) You know, um, we opened a center which 
merged the physiological, the medical, and the psychological. And um, and the results were incredible. Like we were dealing with women who had problems with low desire, like we know a lot of women do, with problems getting aroused and turned on, women who had problems with orgasm and women who had problems with pain. And by using both the medical and the physiological, and I can sort of go into specific details, and the psychological piece of it, understanding what's going on in their head and their minds and their emotions, that was just such a powerful equation. You know, it was like, it wasn't X plus X, it became X squared. And the women, what I saw was these transformations in women's sex lives. And um, so, you know, having come from this like really traditional, I'd say repressed background and moving into this field of sexuality, trying to open it up to women and letting women find a home and a space in their sexuality and not making, blaming them mm-hmm. for everything that's going wrong. It was just so exciting. So I was there, we built this, it was the largest sexual health center in the country. I was there for 25 years. Um, I recently left to slow down and go into private practice. And I wrote a book because I would get calls from all over the country and all over the world. And I felt like the techniques we were using really were translatable. So um I wrote this book, um, Satisfaction Guaranteed, How to Have Sex You've Always Wanted, and it really works on this idea that every woman deserves and can have a good sex life. So, Mariah, I am happy to talk about, you know, the stumbles of an Orthodox Jewish woman trying to do sex education, and I'm happy to talk about, you know, almost any area of women's sexuality and where we get caught up in our own unhelpful narratives. Mm. I'd love to start there, the unhelpful narratives. Um, because I feel like any culture, uh, religious or not, mostly just let's call it women culture in the U.S., um, we can get in our heads. If we're sexual, we're not moral. <laughs> um, it's it's not really seen as empowering still to this day. We have lots of great characters out there who are paving the way, you know, women such as yourself as well. There's a lot of great examples, but we're still seen for the most part as that. So what are some other things that can get in the way? So the first thing I think I want to say, Mariah, and I think this is really important for listeners to hear, is that this sense of shame around sex, shame in terms of I shouldn't be sexual, I should be more sexual, I should be more interested in sex than I'm not, I shouldn't be interested in the fantasies I'm interested in. I should be, you know, able to transition from, you know, dealing with two kids all day to having sex. You know, like all of those shows that we have in our head, especially people from religious backgrounds, tend to blame all that, those shows and that shame on their religious upbringing. And I feel like the religious upbringing can have a huge impact. But here's the piece that sort of I feel like hopefully is empowering is that In my work, I see more, the same number, if not more, of women who come from secular backgrounds, and they also carry massive amounts of shame. Mm, And um, I think it's just in the air that we breathe, Mariah. Like maybe it's, you know, sort of a puritanical culture. Maybe it's just our perception of women from a Victorian age onward. But the reality is, so I'm like sending this message out to anybody who grew up in a religious home and feels like it's not oh my God, I'll never get past this. I want you to know that people who grew up in secular homes, not religious homes, also carry so much shame. 
And um, in some ways, it's maybe harder for them because they don't even have anything to hang it on. You know, mm. we women who grew up in religious homes were like, oh, well, of course we're like embarrassed and uncomfortable because nobody talked about it. And if they did talk about it, they talked about it in these like really convoluted terms. But the women who grew up in places where it wasn't really shamed and still feel that shame almost feel this double level of shame that they feel shame, you know? So I think the most important thing for for any woman to realize and for the men who love them to realize is that it is it is hard for women to walk into the space of feeling good about their sexuality. It just is. Like there is inherently a sense of not being good enough, not knowing enough. It's not okay. Either way is not okay. Too sexual is not okay. Not sexual enough is not okay. Like, And kind of over time, the best way to handle that, I think, is to just live in the space. You know, I know that sounds so counterintuitive, but like the more you can experiment and the more you can play and the more you can be kind to the part of yourself that feels the shame as opposed to screaming at the part of yourself that feels the shame, mm -hmm. you know, or the, avoiding. the easier it will be, right? Like if you're somebody who's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to wear this sexy lingerie, you know, this teddy that I just bought, I'm embarrassed. And then usually we have a second voice that's like, why are you embarrassed? You're supposed to be this empowered you female. What? You shouldn't be. Yes, the exactly. shouldn'ts again. More exactly. Of that. It's the second <laughs> level, and and so the point would be to be try to be kind to all those parts of yourself. Though understand that those parts are all trying to protect you. The part mm -hmm. that feels shame is is afraid you're gonna do something that's gonna be problematic, and the part that's angry at the shame is like trying to protect you from the shame. And like it's okay if you can like learn to love each of those parts. It will it, the shame will slowly, slowly dissipate. I mean, that is, you know, when I started public speaking and I was shaking in my boots to get up and talk and somebody said to me, the only way to get past that, Bacheva, is to do it. And it was true. Like the more I got up to public to speak publicly, the less scared I got. And the more you can move into your sexuality little by little, the less scared and shameful you will feel. And shamed you will feel. And mm. Can I go on or am I going on and on and on and on? No, keep going okay. on and on okay. and on. <laughs> and then the second message I want to give to, and this is really for women, this is for all women, but particularly women who are in long-term relationships, they, they think it feels awkward. They shouldn't do it. And I'm like, embrace the awkward. Embr mm. If you are feeling awkward, you are getting into the right, you know, you're headed in the right direction, right? Like awkward is good, you know? When we think back at our early sexual relationships, and those are usually the hottest for most people, they're all uncomfortable and scary and awkward. So awkward. So awkward. Yes. And scary. Yes. And you don't know how the person's going to react. And it's that scary awkwardness often creates some of those butterflies, the butterflies mm -hmm. in your stomach, the butterflies in your vagina, and right? Arms. And yes. then somehow we get this freaking message that when you're in a long-term relationship, it should all be like, you know, flannel pajamas. Like you should be so <laughs> comfortable. And if it feels weird and awkward, it's not good. And I'm telling you, the moment you start feeling like I'm trying something new with my partner and he's going to be like, who the hell is this? We've been married 20 years and now she wants me to tie her up. You know, like <laughs> that, that if you're feeling awkward as you, or you're thinking of climbing into the shower with him and you're afraid like, oh my God, this is weird. And women are like, well, it's going to feel awkward. So I shouldn't do it. I'm like, oh no, honey, 
embrace the awkward. If it's feeling mm. awkward, you go for it. You know, embrace the awkward. You, if you're feeling awkward, you're probably heading in the right direction because that's what's expansive and sexy and erotic about sex. So that's my, that's my initial pep talk that I would give <laughs> any woman listening to this. Yeah. So feel that, feel that awkward go in where, you know, we all talk about the comfort zone. Growth comes from the pushing outside the comfort zone. And just outside the comfort zone is that awkward is what I'm hearing. And just keep going. There's also, you know, other feelings to be mindful of. I guess if it's not just awkward, if it's harm or feel or fear even, there's going to be maybe a little bit of fear of rejection, especially if you're going to your partner of 20 years and saying, can we try this? And they're like, where is this coming from? Um, that's kind of weird, but I can see where some of that could be a little, um, intimidating of what if they deny me, uh, but if it's the absolute and if you're not in control, if you're losing that control and then it feels awkward or uncomfortable, maybe ask why, because that could maybe be something coming up from past experiences too. be honor, you know, honor that feeling. But when you're in control and kind of inching forward and feeling that awkward differentness, <laughs> that is where you're saying is where we can grow and expand yes, that, I, minimize Yes. The fear. I don't want anybody to hear me and say that means you should just like give up control and do something that okay. feels hurtful and harmful. That is a totally different story. I'm talking awkward and uncomfortable. I'm not talking scary, scaring the shit out of you. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, it's like that's that's <laughs> – that is just a, and yes, it is it does put you up for some level of rejection a little bit when yeah. you put yourself out there. But you know, I will say, um, and you know, over time maybe your listeners will respond to this. Like my experience is that when somebody puts themselves out there, often the partners are like, Whoa, well, that's interesting. They might take them a minute to kind of catch up, but mm. you know they get with the program in a way that makes them feel awkward too. But that's the erotic really lives in the, in the unknown and the, a little bit dangerous, the erotic lives in the, just that little bit of dangerous. And when you have none of that, sometimes the eroticism doesn't, doesn't really follow. It fizzles, fizzles a yes. little, especially in those yes. long-term relationships. It's yes. like yes. when you hear people wanting to mix things up and change things, that's the feeling they're looking for is that little bit of unknown, scary, maybe sort of unsure of what to expect, the awkwardness, um, but fun. And I don't know, Mariah, where we started getting that message that everything should be super comfortable, that you need to be really <laughs> – you know, I feel like it got messed up with this, you know, when we talk a lot about consent and making sure that people are available, you know, ex not only accepting but wanting to be in that situation, mm -hmm. and that's consent and that's critical – but that doesn't mean that everything you do should be should feel easy and comfortable all the time. Like because mm -hmm. if it feels easy and comfortable yeah. all the time, it just is not going to be erotic. So, yeah. Well, you were just like you were saying, getting up and speaking. Um, you know that your intention with this speaking, uh, this public speaking, is to share a message. My intention to explore my body in a new form is for this. And so that's that push um, for that goal. 
Um, and sometimes maybe not even a total goal because sometimes that expectation can ruin the whole experience of just being present and I have to get here and I have to get, and if I put this on and I try this new sex move or this new toy, I'm going to be sexually empowered and it's not like that, <laughs> but it's the space in between trying it that it's like, Ooh, I want more of that. I felt good. And that was new and interesting and it's surprising. Um, that's what's really neat. Right. And sometimes when you try something new with a partner, it you know, you might end up laughing. Like it might not go <laughs> yes. exactly how you plan, right? Like you might, and that's fine too, you know? And, uh, but it's exactly the way you described. It's that sort of moving into that like space and inhabiting that space for a little bit can make mm. all the difference. Yes. So I think that's sort of, I would say that's kind of an overarching message. Um, and then I, I'll add one more thing, which I think is really, really important, which is that we women, and I sometimes I think women's partners, male or even female, um, assume that if there's a problem, it is psychological. And I feel like that is really, really um, detrimental. Like, mm. I cannot tell you how many women or couples I've seen who come in who say, you know, she says, I have like, I've loaded that we've been married 20 years or 12 years and my desire is just dropped and I'm not really interested in sex at the moment. And, you know, we keep, we've been talking to this marriage counselor for a year now and the marriage counselor just says, oh, let's keep talking. And, you know, the conversation, you know, once we, once the communication is good, then the sex will be good. And, and. Honestly, that's another one of those myths that I just need to bust. Like you can have a perfectly good relationship. Like most relationships aren't perfect, Mariah, you know, like you know, <laughs> I've been married for 40 years. So, you know, goes good, goes bad. You know, it's always, it's always something, but I'm in a good relationship. That doesn't mean it's always fabulous every day. Right. But in a, in a good relationship, you can expect to have sex on some kind of regular basis. And we should talk about that because I think scheduling sex freaks people out. And I feel like we need to talk about that. Hmm. But, but the reality is that sometimes the problem in the relationship is the sex. You know, it's like a chicken or the egg thing. Stop telling me that if the conversation's really good, the sex will follow or the communication's really good, the sex will follow. I'm going to tell you that sometimes if the sex is really good, the communication will be great. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes you can have a fine relationship and it's good, but because the sex is, is a problem, it's cracking the relationship and not mm -hmm. necessarily the other way around. So um, I, I feel like we need to be really clear for women that if your sex drive is low, the first thing you should ask yourself is, do I think it's the relationship? And, you know, every relationship's not perfect, but assuming your relationship's pretty damn good, it's fine. It's not like you feel like you hate your partner and you the person's had 15 affairs and you can't stand them, like that's a different story. Then let's look at what's going on. Let's look at your hormones. Let's look at how you've learned how to use your erotic brain. Let's look mm -hmm. at your fantasy life. Let's look at the medications that you're on. Let's look at those things. And that's really where my book does a deep dive. Like how do we, how do, we do an analysis to understand what's really going on and, and face the reality that there's not one solution. You know, people tend to think, oh, the light switch, what's broken? People come into my office and they'll start to cry and like, I can't have orgasms or my orgasms have gotten weak, Java. Like what's wrong? Can we fix it? As if there's one ingredient, like I'm going to give you like a pill that's going to make it better or I'm going to give you one technique that's going to make it better. And I'm going to say to you, our 
every part of our sex life is an amalgam of many things. And if we can find all of those pieces, we can make almost every problem better. So I don't know Mm. if that's clear or if I need to give you an example or whatever. You tell me. But I feel like I think it's really helpful for people not to think that there's these one little magic solutions, but that there's rather a bunch of things you can get solutions from and you need to work to figure that out. Mm -hmm. It's not a domino effect and you're not missing a domino. It is more of a complex intersection of all sorts of things that can go on in your life. Me turning up this could also impact several other things that then, you know, could have maybe some domino things. But if it's, you know, it's sleep and I'm stressed at work and other things, complex, so many things um, that can make that blocker or, you know, low desire. Um, the seasons of sex, if we will, because we can be up and down. And and that's the other thing is, you know, sometimes we're going to have an off season and, and I'm going to have that. And that is when my spouse and I, we've talked about maintenance sex and scheduling it so we can still connect, but we know it's not going to be that hot, steamy, new, you know, sultry, whatever, because I'm doing a million and one projects. Maybe, you know, something else is going on for him. It's going to happen, but we can get there with a few other things knowing that it's not going to be perfect. <laughs> you know, the way that I actually conceptualize this, which and I do this in the book, and I was, because this I found has been most helpful to most women. When they come to me looking for a solution, I'll say it isn't one solution. It's, a, it's um, you have to hit a threshold. Let's say your threshold, mm. I call the threshold 100 points. You need 100 points to have good sex. Mm-hmm. And those points can come from so many things. They can come from your your health, your hormones. They can come. They can be taken away by medications, by kids banging at the door. They can be added to by your fantasy life, by the vibrators you're using, right? Like, so my goal with you is always to see like where do we get the points from, you know? Yes. So you know, like an you know example I often will give is that like. You know, my office manager, let's say Tammy, who's, you know, 23 years old, she gets great sex and she's walking around with so much hormone. Like she's, her hormones are coursing. She's 23. She doesn't have children, you know? So she meets a guy at a bar. They can have sex in the bathroom, in the gross, disgusting bathroom. And because she's walking around 90 points of her own, you know, she meets some hot Mm. guy and that's 10 points. And she's like already at that hundred threshold and she's great. Do you know what I mean? And then let's say Tammy meets, you know, I don't know, give me some like, you know, Keanu Reeves, right? Like some really hot guy, right? And, you know, he's hot and it's new and it's erotic and that gives her 20 points. And Mm -hmm. she falls madly in love and that's 20 points. So now Tammy's walking with 130 points and it doesn't really matter if Keanu Reeves leaves crumbs all over the kitchen sink. Or if she's working so hard at work that she's exhausted and those are taking away 20 points because she's starting with 130 points. So even if all of that's going on, she's still hitting that 100-point threshold and she's doing fine. Mm -hmm. It's just that like, you know, eight years later when she and Keanu Reeves have gotten married and they have two kids and now the kids are banging at the door and that's taking away 20 points and she still loves him, that's giving her 20, but you know, it's not hot and erotic anymore. And so she's sitting at this like hundred threshold and then either the relationship gets a little bit 
you know, a little bit tricky or her hormones drop or she goes on birth control that has an impact on her. And now she's working around at like 90 points and nothing's working. And she feels mm-hmm. like something is the matter, right? So, you know, she her OBGYN could say to her, well, how is it when you're on vacation? And she's like, oh, it's pretty good on vacation. And then the OB will say, well, then clearly it's psychological, right? It's not physiological, but she doesn't live on vacation. That makes her feel worse, right? Like what's yeah. she going to do about that? And oh. I may say to her, yes, vacation's giving you 10 points and that's getting, but now we got to figure out sitting at home, how do we get your threshold higher? And that may be making sure you get the sleep and figuring out concrete ways to do that. They may be saying, let's switch your birth control because that's taken away points. Mm. We may say you need to learn how to use your brain better because you need to get those 10 points from your brain. We may say we have to pump up your hormonal level somehow or other. Um, We may, you know what I mean? Like we may, we're going to look at the whole picture and somehow. And continually look at it. Correct. Just like you were saying, it, it can change over years. It can shift and adjust. And the other thing, you know, that you're saying that comes to mind for me is I love that women talk. We have our girlfriends. We share. We're like, hey, get this vibrator. It's amazing. Made my sex life great. But that could be 20 points for Susie and five points for Debbie because she's not quite comfortable with it or it just doesn't do it for her. But you saying, hey, if you do this, this, and this, it's going to be great. That doesn't really speak to me as an individual person with individual needs and that those 100 points, my threshold is going to get there differently than your threshold. I love that that simple thing, to simple way to look at that gives me permission to be me instead of, oh, totally. well, totally. I just changed my hormones like so-and-so did and that didn't help me. I, you know, started going to the gym and that's still not. And then you continue to start thinking there's something wrong which then continues to take away points. <laughs> right. And, and that block. might be, right. And and for you, it, right. I, I love that. For every woman, it's just different. It's just different. Mm. And for you, that might be a lock on your door so that you know that the kids aren't going to wander in. Right. <laughs> and yes. maybe, maybe, you know, talking to your partner about approaching sex a little differently than you're currently approaching it. You know, mm. it could be a vibrator. It could be, you know, really relearning your fantasy life. And I think we should talk about that because I think um, for so many women, that is a huge piece. So we should talk about that. And also I want to say one more thing and we should go back to that maybe um, is for those women who are dealing with some kind of pain and sort of feel like, oh, that's normal. I'm just going to live with Mm. pain. And I'm like, pain just takes away so many points that do not have to be taken away. Yes. Yes. That's something I've I've recently started to – to not only carry on um, because someone else, another guest said this episodes ago was just because it's normal does not mean it has to be okay. Just because 90% of women have pain during sex, even if we were 99% pain during sex does not mean it's okay and we can go find answers and go act, you know, advocate for our needs. And so I love that because I'm like, oh, so many times we're like, yeah, but we all talk about how uncomfortable it is but then we don't have to stand for it. So I oh just love God. that. And it's just so empowering to be like, me, yes, make change. It drives me nuts, Mariah. Like pain, can I, when people call me up and I say, and they say they have pain, like low desire, orgasm, pain mm-hmm. is not, is it's like a, it's a slam dunk. I 
can tell you that almost almost every case pain can be easily treated. It's just that most gynecologists don't necessarily understand the differentiation between pain. I have a whole, I have like two chapters in the book that actually break down pain and where you may be having pain and why you may be wow. having pain. Yeah, because like, I feel like there's so much misinformation out there about pain. And like you said, women feel like they, oh, well, everybody has pain. But, you know, whether it's vaginismus, vulvodynia, vestibulodynia, those things are all treatable. You just need to like get a better handle on it. So mm. pain and fantasies, I feel like they're critical. Yeah. Well, pain, you know, go advocate for yourself medically, go shop around for someone who is going to listen to you, ask others, you know, what type of pain they have. We, we just had another guest on a couple of episodes who's actually getting her hysterectomy tomorrow. Um, because of that. And she was able to advocate for herself and find those things that she needed. And granted, she's also in the surgery world. So she knew a lot of people and could ask around and, and it just gave you permission, gave our listeners permission to shop around. Um, but I love that there are answers out there, just looking in the right place and finding someone who will listen and, you know, you know find those advocates, not only in yourself, but in others. Um but the opposite of pain is pleasure. And I'd say pleasure is pretty close to fantasies. So let's talk about fantasy. <laughs> not let's to minimize pain, but no, let's we're not see. minimizing pain. But yes, we're going to close the discussion on pain with my saying to you, you can help your pain. I promise you. If you're listening to me here, you can help. The, yes. Okay. I said it. I'm, I'm done. Okay. <laughs> You can see I'm like so passionate about this. It makes me insane when I hear people like living with stuff. So let's talk about fantasies, Mariah, because mm -hmm. I feel yeah. like, I, you know, we started with the discussion of shame early in the beginning, as we started in this episode, we talked about shame. I feel like fantasies are like almost the opposite of the shame because I feel like we avoid the fantasies very often because of mm. inherent shame that we're not even aware that we have. And I think, and I've seen this, that women shut off the erotic part of their brain. And there's no question that you need to be able to engage in fantasies. You need to be able to use the erotic part of your brain with fantasies to be able to have good sex. Mm. And what happens, I think, is that women just shut it down. They shut down that part of their brain because they're busy with other things, because they don't really think they should be thinking about these things, and because they're just not tuned in and working on it, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know, you know, when you, when you understand neuroplasticity and how the brain works, it shuts down the parts of the brain or it just prunes. It, it, like, it doesn't destroy. It just quiets down and blacks out basically the parts of the brain you're not using, right? So mm -hmm. let's say you're a French speaker and you speak French, but then you stop using the French for years. Well, the part of your brain that uses those languages is just basically turned off. It just, and, and that's really gets good. Dusty. In a, <laughs> what? It gets rusty. Right. Well, because you want it, the brain's trying to maximize it. And so it's yeah. putting the energy in the things that you're using. 
So then starting up to talk French again, oh my God, it's like rusty and it's like hard. But once you get going, it sort of almost e more easily sort of comes back again. And not only does the French come flowing back, but it makes it easier to learn other languages, right? Like mm. the neuroplasticity of your brain is so great that once you start using a part of your brain, it, it gets the synapses going, gets the blood, you know, going, gets the neurotransmitters firing. And all of a sudden it makes it easier to use that part of the brain and erotic brain, your erotic brain is exactly the same, exactly the same. Mm -hmm. So when you stop fantasizing or thinking about sexy things, those parts, that part of your brain just quiets down in a way that makes it hard to use when you're ready to use it. And then people mm -hmm. are kind of surprised when it's harder to get turned on. It's harder to get in the mood. It's hard. Right. So I think when people start thinking about fantasies that way, it makes it much easier to think, okay, well now what do I do? And here's, I can give you some techniques for how to like re rewire that part of your brain. Cause I feel like that part of your brain is really important. So, um, you know, do you want to say anything before I keep talking? Cause I feel like I'm talking and talking. And talking. <laughs> well, you're talking to another, you know, neuroscience nerd over here. So absolutely love it and validate everything you're saying. Um, you know, what's really interesting is is the the thought of how we slowly turn it off and pull away from that and, and not fire those neurons as often more than it kind of just let's reroute somewhere else. Let's be more efficient brain. Um, we can reawaken it up. But um, the blocker, I think for me early on, avoiding fantasies or being worried about fantasies so I was judging them and I was allowing society to judge them and being like, what is wrong with me? Why did I think about this? It's in my own brain. No one. There is no mind reader out there. Um, no one's going to hear you. No one's going to know what you're thinking of. Um, and that's just it. They're, they are fantasies and, and allowing your imagination. And if you can turn off your judgment – um, or the value you put on it, if you're giving it a negative value um, or seeing it in a negative light, I think you can really tap into something, some powerful things. I still find myself hesitating once in a while. And I was like, that's a surprising one. Okay. <laughs> or like, uh, how far do I want to take this fantasy right now? Because I'm now just curious, um, those kinds of things. But how, tell us how to tap into those things. So I said, the judgment. Mariah, I love you so much. Like, I feel <laughs> like that is like the most important message. I cannot tell you how much women judge their own fantasies. Like yes. they, they stop themselves because they feel like they're not PC. How could I, uh, the cl most classic one that I see all the time is women like being taken, right? Like mm -hmm. having like overtaken fantasies, having somebody climb in the window and take them, right? And they're like, oh, how could I be thinking this? I would not in a real life, I would never want that to happen. And I'm like, where in our society, Ryan, did we lose the idea, the distinction between fantasy and reality? Like, mm -hmm. where did we start thinking that our fantasies should somehow reflect reality or vice versa? Like, Or they have to be played out in real life. Correct. Um, exactly. That that's what a yeah. – that's a fantasy. And what's really funny, and when I say this to women, I see these light bulbs going off and they're like – I say, okay, let's imagine that somebody climbs through the window and, you know, ravages you, right? 
who actually is controlling that person, right? Like, what is that? You're deciding what the person looks like. You're deciding how many people are climbing in the window. You're deciding exactly what they're saying to you and what they're doing to you. You're deciding exactly when they start and when they stop. Like, who's controlling that? So that fantasy is nothing in any way to do with real life, right? Mm -hmm. But it's a fantasy and they're so much fun. If you can revel in them and you can, you know, realize that they're just fantasies, they are, they can be so much fun and such a fun part of your life. And I think people are scared. They're scared that they shouldn't be thinking those things the way you're saying. And on some level, they feel like, well, if I'm thinking them, I must really want them to happen. And I need Mm. people, women to understand that that is not true. You know, if I had a nickel for every woman who said, well, I, I fantasize about other women, but I don't think I'm a lesbian. And I'm like, it doesn't, nothing you've told me suggests that you're a lesbian. And yet you love fantasizing about other women. So go you, have fun, like enjoy Mm -hmm. it. Right. So learn women learning not to judge themselves is so, so, so critical. And it's so insidious. I just had a client yesterday who said to me, and she has been so blocked for so many years and she's finally starting to get turned on. And she's like, she said to me, you know, I realized I'm really turned on by very overweight men. And I feel like I shouldn't be right. Like I always wanted a partner who's like, thin and ripped, but the pictures, the images that turn me on and the fantasies that turn me on are all these very large men. And what is wrong with me? I'm like, clearly there's nothing wrong with you because all of the erotic pictures you're seeing are out there because other people must have the same exact fantasies as you do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, so, so let, can we just suspend the judgment? So I, I, I'm just saying what you said, you said it more eloquently, but I'm just sort of repeating it since it get into people's head. And if you can start with that as a baseline, then here are some things you can actually do to see if you can get your erotic brain going. So let me let me give you some very, very sort of behavioral techniques that I find very useful. So one is find the form of erotica that works for you. So mm-hmm. for some women, that's watching erotica. Mm-hmm. For some women, that's listening to erotica. And for some women, that's reading erotica. Those are the three kind of starting points. And let me tell you, auditory, and you still get to imagine, reading kind of puts me to sleep. But listening to it and the sounds, I was like, this awoken something that I didn't even know was there. Um, and and it was just amazing for me to just go and explore that. And I was like, it took me until I did this podcast to finally get to hear, a, you know, that there is audio porn out there and other erotica. And maybe I call it that a little safer. Some of us, um, maybe yeah, the, need that I, I, safety. Erotic and porn. One person's erotic is somebody else's porn. Like, I don't exactly. know. Exactly. I know. Is, but it's just yeah. scary. It's <laughs> less scary to people when I say erotica than I say porn. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely some women who love watching porn in general, mm-hmm. the st- statistics in general, the data suggests that, you know, there's men like more, um, watching that, you mm-hmm. know, visual, visual stimulus mm-hmm. is a little bit, met, you know, more strong for men, but there are women who really find the visual stimulus incredible listening. And I break listening down into two categories. There's, have you found Dipsy, the, the, the app Dipsy, there's an app called Dipsy, which oh. is just erotic stories being played out by actors. And you okay. can pick that you can pick very hot and spicy, a little more vanilla. You can pick mm-hmm. women on women, men on women, group, romantic. You know, you can pick whatever you want. And there's actors actually acting out erotic stories. And for some women, that's very powerful. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's what you were talking about or you were talking about listening to sounds of sex, which I find women find also. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And that you can just Google, you know, sounds of sex, right? It's amazing, <laughs> right? And then there's some women who do not, that doesn't make them comfortable, but they love reading and they can build the pictures in their head. And mm-hmm. um, and for those women, I always suggest either literotica, which is an erotic um, online, everybody puts in stories. It's, it's so Fun. big, it's a little overwhelming. Literotica, wow. it's called. And okay. you can find anything you want. You can Google Harry Potter. You can Google, um, you know, bondage. You can Google romantic walks on the beach, right? You can Google married sex. You can Google orgies. You can, there's stories, any story you can imagine is on that. It's a little overwhelming, but it's there. Or, and for some women that is too overwhelming, I say, just order a book, like the best erotica of 2022. Like there's a million Mm -hmm. of these little anthologies and short stories are really the way to go. That's how I feel. Short stories are the way to go. Even though I do know that Fifty Shades of Grey sent a lot of women over the top. Like, you know, people <laughs> love that. Um, so, um, but I like short stories because, and here's the key, Mariah, all of these things, watching, listening, reading, are step A to translating this into your brain, right? I want you to learn to fantasize in your head. Ultimately, these are just springboards. And so mm-hmm. short stories are good because or short stories listening or reading, because what you figure out is what is it that turns me on and how do I expand that in my brain? How can so, I tap into it later when yeah, I do how do want I tap to into tap later? into it? And, and how do I make it even hotter? So for mm. example, you're reading a story and some guy is watching a woman through a keyhole and he's watching her undress and you're, you find that you're getting turned on. So I say the first thing you do is think, am I turned on as the watcher or the person being watched? And Mm. if I was being watched by six people, would that be even hotter? Or if I was watching group sex, would that be hotter? And what would those people look like? And that's stuff that you can can build porn that works for Mariah. Because the porn porn that works for Mariah is not going to be the same porn or erotica that's going to work for Bacheva. It -hmm. just isn't. Like we have different erotic maps. And so, you know, nobody's going to create the hottest porn for you except yourself. Mm-hmm. And so if you can use these as a springboard, you're going to start to create it. And I want women to start moving into their brain so they can use it when they're having sex with their partner. And we should talk about that because women have so much guilt about that and it's absurd. So guilt, you having sex with your partner. And when you want to get yourself in the mood to have sex with your partner or when you want to have sex with yourself, any of those in times, mm-hmm. having this, having the inbuilt ability to have the porn reel going in your own head is going to be unbelievably helpful. So um, that's 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 point one. And point two is, and this is also hard for people to hear, you want to start thinking about erotic thoughts, not necessarily when you want to have sex. That's good too. Mm-hmm. But you want to, I'll often suggest to women every morning for two or three minutes, they open up one of these books or they listen to it and they get, they see if they can get themselves turned on early in the day with two or three minutes of thinking of something erotic. And then during the course of the day, hoping that that starts to um, sort of pop up and mm-hmm. and allowing it to pop up as opposed to thinking, oh, I'm picking up my kids from school. I should not be thinking about somebody going down on me right now. That's not appropriate, <laughs> you know? But like, yes, enjoy it for the two minutes you're driving to pick your kids up and then you can pick the kids up, right? Like we want this, again, we want that erotic part of your brain 
to be well-oiled and well-functioning and those synapses to be jumping. We want it to be functioning a lot. And, mm-hmm. and, and women often think, you know, I had a client once who came to see me, this is years ago when 50 shades of rape first came out. And she said, she had to take the train down to see me. And she said, you know, I, I didn't read it on the way down. Cause you know, I didn't really want to get turned on that. I only read it right before I have sex. And I'm like, really and truly you should be getting yourself turned on as often and wherever you are, because you don't have to do anything with it. You just want to be able to get turned on and then put it aside and get turned on and put it aside. And then when you really want to get turned on, it's so much easier. Mm-hmm. Well, and that buildup is so much better too. It's like, oh, I have been working towards this. Um, you know, it's kind of like an, an athlete training. They're going to be training, they're going to be training, and then they have the event. And it's just so much better than if they hadn't trained. Um, they might right. be good at it naturally. That might be something that they're already, but they're going to be training, building up to their, you know, whatever event it is, games, yes, <laughs> yes. sports, yes. Yes. insert yes. whatever. <laughs> yes. So, so I think when it comes, to, what it, it's coming down to is trying not to judge your fantasies because mm-hmm. that's piece number one. Mariah said it so well. Like just. Try not to judge your fantasies and understand that they're fantasies. Two, find the thing that will help you get your fantasies going, be that reading, watching, listening. And then three, start translating that to your brain as much as you can. And four, start reveling it during the day, not just when you're trying to have sex. Like, you know, and then see it as like almost a part of your life. Feeling like a sexual being is a part of your life. It's not just what happens you know, mm-hmm. once a week or twice a week in the bedroom. Yes. Um, that sexual side of you as is as much a part of you as even just eating. You know, when you have hunger, when you're horny, when you are satisfied and full, when you have had a wonderful climax and are, you know, resting. It's very similar, but we try to shut it off and put a judgment, but I don't shame my own self for being hungry and eating, well, um, at least uh, without eating disorder or other things that we can still equate to that we have um, interventions to support and help with. We have interventions and things to support with sexual wellness as well. Um, I think that's a hard one just to, to give ourselves permission that this is a part of me and not something I'm a part of. Oh, that's a really interesting way to put that. I like that. Yes. I think that's really, we want it to be a part of ourselves and we feel more alive when we're, Mm -hmm. it's a part of ourselves, right? Yeah. I'm not just acting it out or I'm not just a, a body and with somebody else. Um, it's, it's wholeheartedly, you know, mind, body, spirit and with, um, that's how we can tap into those really wonderful. And women can feel the difference. It's like Mm -hmm. if you're doing your whole life and you're just doing whatever you do with your life. And then you try to meet your spouse in the bedroom. And like, it's so hard to like turn the sexual part of you on. But if you've been living your life with the sexual parts kind of weaving their way in and out, now when you're meeting your partner in the bedroom, it just feels like that part will come out just Mm -hmm. much more easily and, and organically. Yes. And authentically, instead of a performance or an expectation or a pressure of how much, you know, okay, now I'm married or I'm with a partner that we've committed to 
and I'm supposed to do this all the time and be turned on all the time. Um, but I had spent my whole young adulthood or teenage years trying to shut it out and was told, you know, wait for later, you're not ready. And so I didn't even know how to just awaken that. That's not something I can leave dormant and then just expect it to bloom one day out of nowhere. You do have to water, fertilize it and care for it. But you also have to understand what you're caring for. You're not building this up for one event or um, even for someone else, I dare say. It is just for you. It is just for you. I think that's amazing. Um, Do we have time to talk about scheduling sex, which I feel like puts everybody off? Do we have time? I don't want to abuse your time. Okay. Because I feel like the the other thing that really um, throws people off is when I talk about scheduling sex in a long-term relationship and people are like, scheduling sex? Like, what the hell? You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) have you talked about that a lot on the show or not yet? Um, now and again, but that's the lovely thing about this show. We have new people, new listeners all the time who are just catching up. And the more we hear it and the different voices we hear it from, and the more we're going to practice that inside of our, our brain and the neuroplasticity, oh, scheduling sex. I've heard this 30 times. I should do that. So yes, please, <laughs> please continue to share. So I will say that when I meet with couples who have had a long sex life, you know, we're talking, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, they have all scheduled sex, whether they're aware of it or not. So I will Mm -hmm. talk to a a couple and I'll say, they'll say, well, we don't schedule it. I'll say, okay, so then just tell me a little bit about when you have sex. And they'll say, oh, like we always have it once on the weekend or we always have it once on the weekend and usually once during the week or, or they'll say, well, we don't usually let more than three or four days go by with that. And I'm like, that you are scheduling. You just, it's just a very, it's just very casual schedule, right? It's not a mm-hmm. schedule that you've like put it on the calendar. The reality is that if you are living busy lives and you have children or, or two jobs or whatever it is, or taking care of parents or whatever it is that you're doing, if you do not schedule sexual activity, it is not going to happen. Like it mm-hmm. is just not going to happen. And yes, early on, I get it. That's what you're thinking about all the time. But beyond that, for long-term relationships, very unlikely. And, you know, I always laugh when people say, well, that doesn't sound very sexy, scheduling sex. And I'm like, you know what's really not sexy? Not having sex. That's much <laughs> less sexy. So, or having another partner bringing it up and feeling neglected because, yes, hey, totally, we haven't had that. Totally. And then, well – I would, gosh, it has been a minute and I want to give that to you, but now I'm actually feeling a little guilty. So it's going to actually be hard for me to enjoy this. And so that is why I schedule sex is so I don't get in that and, and sometimes forget and then realize it has been much longer than I thought it was. And, you know, by the time you look up and realize how long it's been, um, and that's never what my intent is to make my partner feel neglected or their needs um, less than whatever my checklist was that kept me busy either. So, mm-hmm. so I will often have couples actually sit down and pick a specific time or times in the week that they are going to have sex, especially when the, there's a mismatch of desire, when there's one person who wants more sex than the other. What I'll suggest is that they pick a specific time, let's say, I don't know, Saturday morning, and then 
or Saturday morning and Wednesday night. And the rest of the time, sex is kind of off the table so that nobody feels like the clock is ticking and they're feeling mm -hmm. guilty. And the person who has lower desire can also like get ready. I talk a lot about this a lot in my book because I feel like this has helped so many couples with this mismatched desire. Like it is such a big issue because the person with low desire feels like, oh my God, it's been a week. It's been 10 days. I feel so guilty. And, mm -hmm. and I, you know, is he being nice? Is he being grumpy? You know, and the, and usually the male partner, but not always is like, I don't know what to do. If I, if I bring it up, then she gets annoyed. If I don't bring it up, it doesn't happen. I try to do the dishes, but that, you know what I mean? Like it's, everybody's walking on these eggshells in a way that makes everybody feel unhappy. And what I also see sometimes is that the, let's say the woman is the low desire person, you know, she's afraid to like kiss him or put her arms around him because she's afraid he's going to get that as a signal. Oh, you know, she's open for it. Let's go have sex now. And he feels like not only are we not having sex, but she's not kissing me or touching me. And she's legitimately not doing those things because he kind of will take that as a signal. And then she feels like, well, I can't do those. Anyway, if you schedule on time and off times, hmm even if you just do it for a month or two, it takes all of that secondary sort of garbage and sort of clears it all out, right? Like now he knows that she knows that she can climb into bed naked with him and put her arms around him and snuggle. And, you know, they had, they're having sex Saturday night. Now they're not having sex. It's clear. And she can kiss him passionately when he gets home and he's not gonna, you know, assume that she wants to have sex. And he can relax a little bit and know like, okay, I, I don't have to wine, dine and woo her because Saturday night we're going to have sex, you know? Um, so my experience with this is that it has been so, so helpful to couples, like, especially when they're kind of working out that, you know, that disparity of desire, which mm -hmm. every couple has at certain times for a whole variety of reasons. I talk about that a lot in the book too, but like just to, to make it manageable so that sex can go back to being sort of a loving meeting of two people as opposed to this constant stressful, you know, dance that is hurtful to people. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I, the heart. Yeah. Cause it can be really hurtful. And then there are couples who like, if they're not in the middle of that crazy kind of, you know, pull and push, they just, they just aren't making time. And if that's the case, then I just say like, sit down and schedule it in, honey, because you want, you don't want to turn around and say, it's been six months since we had sex. It's complicated when that happens. And that's when cracks start to happen. And, you know, it's much harder to get the gears going the other way when they've, you, they ground it to a halt. So, you know, it's like that neuroplasticity thing again. So in a whole variety of situations, scheduling sex is really helpful and can be extremely sexy, you know? And I, I want people to get that. And under sometimes, you know, one time when I was talking about this years ago, somebody said, oh my God, it's almost like you're talking about like exercising, like it's something that you do. And, and I, I was really defensive. I was like, oh no. And then the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, you know what? Hell yeah. yeah. It is a lot about like exercising. I exercise. I, I don't always feel like getting off that sofa and going for that walk or going to that, you know, Zumba class. Um, but I know that when I do it, I feel great. And yes. when I find ways that I enjoy doing it, it's so good for my life. And, um, it makes me feel good about myself. It makes me feel healthier. I'm so happy I did it. 
And I feel like we should start thinking about sex that way also. Oh, I love that permission too. And that's what I try to tell my spouse all the time. Like, you know, sometimes after a long day, (laughs) I come into bed and I'm exhausted. And so for me to initiate, sometimes that's hard. Just like you said, to get off up off the couch, you know, that's the hardest part. But then you know once it's going, you're going to love it. And even afterwards, you're going to love it more, have those long-term benefits, those lingering benefits even of connection and everything. But you said something with scheduling that I I think I'm going to bring up to my own spouse because I really like this is not just the on days, but the off days too. Because sometimes I do want to just feel like I can be completely lazy and whatever, and I'm not turning him down or, or hurting that. Or it's just like, no, I don't want to. And I don't want to say no. It is so hard for me when I know the reason you're asking is for this or that and the other, and I'm not trying to deny those. And so no, no, just I, having I, permission I, of the, the off day. No days. You know both what? Both of I, us I, agree. I talk mm-hmm. about that a lot because most sex therapists will talk about scheduling sex and I talk about scheduling not sex. So you're scheduling mm-hmm. sex and not sex. And it's, I think it's vitally important for all the reasons you just said. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. thank you for re-raising that. How fun would it be to have three on days, three off days and a wild card, you know, where we're going to have to say, hey, are we in the mood? I'm going to have to give you hints. You're going to have to pick up the hints and we're going to have to be very clear on what we both want. And I think that's a really great way to communicate consent, get the hints, you know, have that, um, the wild card of unexpected, you know, because I think some people, that's why they think scheduling sex isn't very fun because it's now it's expected or whatever. But I think I'm going to try that out. I'll let you know how it goes. Let me know. Please (laughs) let me know. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, I'm sure we could talk all night. It's been such a pleasure to have you on and I really appreciate it. Where can all of our listeners find more information about you? So you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Batsheva, D-R-B-A-T-S-H-E-V-A, or on TikTok at the Dr. Batsheva because they threw off Dr. Batsheva at one point. <laughs> yes. I, it's I'm crazy. surprised I'm you're on TikTok. So, <laughs> yes. I, oh, I am on TikTok. I'm, yeah, I'm big on TikTok. It's so funny. But now they seem to have calmed down and they left me up Ooh. as the Dr. Batsheva. Okay. Um, and I have a website, which you can find me on at drbatsheva.com. And I, and my book, please, my book, um, Satisfaction Guaranteed, How to Have the Sex You've Always Wanted. I really feel like for women, this is like, this may be the answer to the issues of your sex life. So thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. And everyone listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning in. If you found something about this episode intriguing, interesting, or that you just don't even agree with, feel free to email us at saltysexcast at gmail.com. Let's have a chat. Um, And if you want to just join in on the conversation, that's another great way to join us or social media. Uh, SaltySexCast.com is our website. I just want to say thank you for everyone, to everyone, and I'll see you all next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Salty Sex Cast. Ready for round two? Find us on Facebook.